Well, praise God. We're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of Colossians. Uh, Last week, we started a series in the book of Colossians. We got about halfway through chapter 1. And today, we're going to get the rest of the way through chapter 1. And uh, so, when you see these numbers, it's the part of the series, not the book that we're on. Because it would confuse me too. Someone's going to be like, Colossians 2, but we're still in 1. This is Pastor Wayne. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just not good at this. But uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. And last week, if you remember, we got to see Paul's heart for the church. We got to see Paul's heart for the saints of, uh, and the church in, in Colossae. And the interesting thing about that, remember, was that he didn't even plant that church. Matter of fact, he had never even been to that church. And as far as we know, he never went to that church. But he still had a heart for that church. And he prayed him and Timothy and the rest of the guys that were with them. They were praying for that church without ceasing after that they, they heard of their faith and the work that Christ had done in them. And we were challenged to pray for one another, right? As we saw how Paul was working, we were challenged to pray for one another. But not just one another, but also for every life-giving church in this city. I mean, when we hear about the churches down the street doing great things for God, we need to be thankful. for. How I many you know we're not in competition with other churches? But we're co-laboring with them. We're all part. We all have local bodies, but we're all part of the body of Christ. There's only one body, and we're all in it. And we need to be praying for other churches as well. Speaking of praying, the, uh, war, the prayer meeting was awesome this morning, wasn't it? Man, we had a full house. It's probably the most we've ever had in there. We had to, Tony came in and thought it was going to be standing room only. We had to go knock down another chair for her. So praise God for that. And you'll notice that, that even in that, you know, we're practicing what we preach, right? We were praying for the other churches this morning because it's important that we pray for other believers, we pray for other churches. And then today, Paul is going to begin ministering on the person of Christ, who Christ is, and how he is preeminent in everything and to everything, particularly in that city, right? Because you guys remember what was going on in that city, right? It was kind of a melting pot of different religions and different, different uh, people groups, and they had the religions from the East trying to mix in with Christianity, and we had some of the, the, uh, the, the, the Greek pagan war worshiping going on. It was kind of mixing together in like a big melting pot of a choose-your-own-religion type thing, kind of like what it looks like in the United States today. And what Paul is going to do today is begin to lay the framework and saying that, hey, you guys are being influenced or trying to be influenced by all these other things, but I want you to know that Christ is preeminent. He is the number one, right? He's the head honcho. He's the one. He is the end all, be all. God, or Jesus, is number one. And then finally, he's going to go into what Paul, what his individual ministry is to the church. Basically, I don't know if you noticed it, but quite often Paul has to lay out his credentials. You know, I think, none of that I think about it, it must have been quite often that people just wanted to dismiss Paul. Have you ever felt, have you ever been out there trying to minister the gospel and you feel like people are dismissing you? Or you're trying to invest into somebody's life and, and you ever feel like that they're just like, who are you to talk to me? What do you, I mean, who am I? Why do I want to listen to you? Well, don't feel bad, you're in good company, because that's what happened to Paul, too. He's constantly laying out his credentials, why he's an apostle. He's going to, basically, in this case, he's going to also let them know that, hey, I know you guys have never heard of me before, but here's why. You should let me speak into your life. And then he starts talking about what his ministry in the church is, about actually what Paul is doing, how that he is the one ministering the gospel. And not only was this Paul's ministry to the church, but I believe that's all of our ministry to the church. First and foremost, all of you guys are preachers. Whether you want to be or not, you're a preacher. You need to be ministering, sharing the gospel with those around you. Amen? So let's go ahead and get started. 
In Colossians 1, 15-17, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And I hope you guys are ready, because this is a uh, theology-rich sermon this morning, because we've got some good stuff to look at here. So like you said, if you recall, the issue that Paul was having was is that there was this great mix of people in this city. And they were basically, what was happening is Christianity was becoming watered down. People were mixing stuff in, they were, they were picking, they thought it was like the progressive commercial where they could walk through and pick out the different parts of the Christianity that they wanted to do, put it on the counter. I'll take this, but I don't want this. And what basically Paul's doing is like, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go back to the basis. We're going to lay down the foundation of who Jesus is. And he wants to show who he is and why he's important and why he takes the preeminence, why he's above every other thing that they've been hearing. So the first thing that we see that's demonstrated as we, we look through a few different things here is, is that, one, Jesus is God. How many know that Jesus is God in the flesh? Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He's not, he wasn't just a good guy. He is God. 100% God, 100% man. And he says right here, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, when he's saying He's the image of the invisible God, He is an exact representation or revelation of God. An exact representation of God. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a simple math problem right there. If in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and we find out later that the Word became flesh, Jesus. So if the Word is God and the Word became flesh, then that means the flesh is God. Jesus is God. And then the writer of Hebrews reiterates this in Hebrews 1.3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The exact imprint of God. Did you know that when you see Jesus, you've seen God? Matter of fact, that's what Jesus declared, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? And in John 14.9, He said, I have, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Matter of fact, you guys ever heard the expression, Jesus is perfect theology? You want to know what the will of God is, you just look at what Jesus was doing. Say, is it, is it the will of God that, that He wants me healed? Well, you can look at every time someone comes up to Jesus and asks to be healed. Did, did Jesus ever say... Nah, it's not for you right now. Or, you know what, I really want to heal you, but if you could just get this area of your life straightened out first, that'd be great. Come back to me when you've got that figured out. Or did Jesus ever say no when somebody asked to be healed? Not once. We can look at what the will of God is by looking at Jesus because he's the exact imprint of him. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. Matter of fact, Jesus later said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So if Jesus did it, that means it's the will of God, Amen. And the reality is, is that nothing that's created can reveal the essence or the exact imprint of the image of God. Paul said this in Romans 1.20, he said, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nation, nation, nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Paul says, you know what, 
we can see God in stuff. This is one of those right here when, when people ask, uh, you know, what about people who have never heard of Jesus? They still have evidence of God. They still need to call out to God. But it says that they're without excuse. We see his invisible attributes, his internal powers, his divine nature, nature in every single one of his creations. In all of nature, we see it. We see his power, his wisdom, and his nature in the world around us, but we don't see him. We just see evidence of him, right? There is nothing in creation that is an exact imprint or the essence of God, except for Jesus. And if that's the case, if Jesus will show us the exact imprint of God, and nothing that is created by God can do that, the natural result, the natural uh, result to that is, is that Jesus is God. So that's the first thing that Paul's saying is, is that. Hey, Jesus is God. We need to get that straight. We need to get that out in the open. We want to establish where Jesus ranks with all this other stuff. One, let's, let's talk about him being God. Then he goes on to say that he is the firstborn of all creation. And I think this can be looked at in a couple of different lights. First, being firstborn doesn't reveal his, his order in the timeline, if you will. It's not the, not the timeline of his creation, but rather his position. In other words... Jesus being firstborn does not mean that he was the first thing created by God because I mean, you know, Jesus wasn't created by God. You can't be the creator and the created at the same time. He is God, the creator, so by definition he can't be created. But it does reveal his position. And it's not the only time in the Bible that you see this terminology used. If you look in Psalms 89.27, it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And this is referring to one of the promises of God to David. And if you guys know, know who David is, you know that he wasn't the firstborn. Matter of fact, he was the lastborn, right? And we also know that he wasn't the first king because Solomon was made king before David, right? Not Solomon, sorry, Saul. One of those, other, one of those S names. Saul was made king before David. And uh, so we know he wasn't the first king, but, but God refers to him as the firstborn. So we see that it's a, it's a, it's a nature of position, not of when he was created in the timeline. So we know now that Jesus is God and he has the highest position. And we can also view that, I think it's, it's, it's perfectly okay to view that in light of, of his work on the earth as well because he was the firstborn of all of us. He was the first one to be raised. Actually, matter of fact, in a few more verses, is going to talk about how he was the firstborn of the dead. Next we see that he... <clears throat> Pardon me, that all things were created by him. We see that Jesus is the creator. In John 1 3, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So if nothing made was not made by him, then he himself could not be made. Because if he was made, then he would be something made and had to be made, created by him. And that just doesn't make any sense. You can't follow that logic because he wasn't created he's always been and it says not only did he create all things but he created them for himself it's not good news that god created this whole world in order for us to live in it because he wanted us we were created for god's pleasure he wanted a relationship do you guys understand how amazing that is that God created you because he wanted to be your friend. Do you know that God wanted to be your friend? 
And that's why he created you. We were, everything in creation was created for God. That blows me away. And then it says he holds everything together. That means that that Jesus is the power that everything is still holding together today. You know, God spoke the world into existence. You can read about that in Genesis. And we also know that if if everything that exists was created by him, the, the same process was used to create the heavens. Everything in existence was created by the power of his word and, and by that same thing, that everything that is being held together even today, the reason it's still in existence is by the power of his word. He is still holding us together. Now, I know this is a lot. We took and we dug in really deep in this stuff. But Paul's trying to make a point. Do you understand who, who this Jesus is that you're worshiping? Paul wants to make it very clear who this this man is because he's about to argue that he's preeminent above everything. Now, it would be very difficult to argue that Jesus was above everything if Jesus was just some guy off the street, don't you think? So now you see what Paul's getting into here. Then he goes on to say in Colossians 1.18, he says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. After Paul lays the groundwork of who Jesus is, he lays out how he relates to the church. Basically, he says that not only is Jesus God, not only did he create everything, but he is also the head of the body or of the church. In the Greek usage, that word head means source or origin or as, or as well as leader or ruler. And I don't think you can pick any translation that you want and it makes sense because that's who Jesus is in our life of this church. Paul wanted to be very clear that Jesus is the center or the focus of the church. He is the one that guides the steps of the church. He is the, he's the head honcho. And if that's the case, then there is no room for others to try to usurp Jesus' authority in the church. If he is the leader, if he's the head, you can't bring something else in. You can't pick some other part of some other religion because it sounds good to you. Because Jesus is the one that, that laid out the rules, amen? And we're going to see that he's the firstborn from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15.20 it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, what he's trying to say here is Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead. But if he's the firstborn, if he's the first fruits, there's the implication that he's not the last. Because that involves all of us, amen? We will also rise in him when that day comes. And now we get to the entire focus of that entire section. These last couple slides we looked at is that, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now sometimes I read these words. You ever read these words and you're like, I know what that means based on how it's being used. But I never knew what the definition of preeminent was. So I went to look it up. Right, And here's the definition of preeminent. It says, eminent above or before others. Well, I don't know what eminent means either. That's why I looked it up. How can you use the same word that you're trying to define in the definition? So let me read you what eminent means. It says, high in station, rank, or repute, prominent, or distinguished. And then preeminent means eminent, that, high in rank, station, or repute, above or before others, superior, or surpassing. Basically what Paul's saying is that in everything... 
Not in most things. Not in just religious stuff. Not in just stuff that relates to the church, but in everything. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's the head honcho. He's number one. He's at the top. And this was God's purpose in making His Son the Savior, the Creator, and the head of the church. It's because He is the end-all, the be-all. There is nothing that can be placed in front of Him. And if there is something in front of Him in your life, then you've got a mix-up of priorities. We need to get that straightened out. See what was going on in the church of Colossae. was kind of like today's world. In our, in our world where we see these coexist bumper stickers plastered on the back of vehicles. People were arguing in the city of Colossae, just like here today, that, yeah, Jesus is a way, but He's not the only way. You know, why, can't, why, can't, why does this one have to be right? Why can there not be any other ones? Why can't there be different ways to get right with God? They wanted, they, they just, can't we all just get along? You do your thing, I'll do my thing. And it's just like today when people say that to me, it's like, because I care about you. If I were to ignore you and let you do your only thing, it's like with your kids. I told you last week, nothing drives me crazy more than when people are like, I'll let my kids make their own decisions. What do you mean? Don't you care about your kids? Do you believe what you said? Do you really believe that if they don't accept Jesus Christ in their heart, that they're going to hell? That's what you believe, right? They're like, yes. I'm like, then why are you giving your kids that option? Teach them about Jesus. Because He's the only way. The truth and the light. You see, just like today, back then, they couldn't say that Jesus was preeminent because it would invalidate every other way that they decided they wanted to get into heaven, to get right with God. And the interesting thing is, is that every other religion in this world, every other way is about you getting right with God. If you only do this, if you only do that, you have to get right with God. Christianity is different, and it's the only one where We don't get right with God because you can't. Instead, God made you right with Him. And that's why it's the only way. God came down to us instead of us trying to make our way to God. He goes on to say in Colossians 1, 19-20, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The last few scriptures have been how Jesus relates to the world and to us. But now we're going to see how Jesus relates to God. And this word right here says, for him, all the fullness, that word fullness right there in the Greek is the Greek word pleroma. And it was basically a word that the Gnostics used to to use at the time when they would make arguments about what was right and what was wrong that meant the sum total of all divine power and attributes. So when it says the fullness of God, it's saying the sum total of all divine power and attributes is in Jesus. In Jesus dwelt all of God. Not some of God, not part of God, but all of Him. In Colossians 2.9, we're going to see next week, and it says that for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. It always blows my mind when, when, when people make the argument that Jesus isn't God. 
particularly different sects of Christianity that are, or so-called Christianity that argue that. Because we have one major malfunction in that theory. If Jesus was just a man, albeit say he was still a perfect man, but he was just a man, you know how many people he could have died for? One. One. Well, that leaves a lot of problem for the, the rest of us. The 99%, right? We're out of luck. See, because Jesus was God, he was able to do what no man was able to do. Reconcile all of mankind to God. That's only possible because Jesus was God. It's only possible because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And that's how he was able to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I said, if Jesus wasn't God, he would have been able to reconcile at most one person. But because he was God, he was able to reconcile each and every one of us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that, that when God looked down and he saw how messed up things were, he didn't just wipe the slate, and he didn't just compromise on his integrity? How many know that God theoretically could have just said, you know what, we're just going to start over. Wipe the slate clean, we're going to start over. But that would have violated who he was. That would have violated his integrity. That would have violated his goodness. That would have violated his holiness. But instead, he found a way to make all of us clean, to pay the penalty, because right, the wages of sin is death. There is a, a penalty for sin. Instead, he sent his son to pay that price for us. So he didn't let up on the penalty. He didn't let up on what was owed, but instead he paid it himself. He didn't compromise yet we're still made clean. And that blows my mind. That's, you know, that's how I know that this is a God thing, because no man would have came up with that idea. We're all too selfish for that. And in Colossians 1, 21 through 22, it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So imagine for a moment. So now Paul has just got done explaining who Jesus is. But now imagine for a moment that you get this letter from someone you've never met before. And he's going to begin to explain to you how things are. And there's an expectation that you're going to receive from that and change how things are. You never heard of this person, but now he's speaking directly to you. How would you react? I mean, you guys are new to the church here. If I sent you a letter trying to tell you how to do things, you guys would be a little weirded out, right? Jessica, how would you feel if I sent you a letter out of the blue and began to explain to you how to do things? How would you react to that? It would be weird, right? wouldn't be here this morning, I can tell you that. <laughs> the truth is, that's what basically is happening here. I mean, they know of Paul, right? They've heard of him. They knew that their pastor, Epaphras, the guy who planted the church in Colossae, they knew that he, uh, that he was probably one of Paul's disciples. He trained under Paul. He came out and planted this church. They knew that their pastor had just left to go see Paul. I wonder what was happening in his place while he was gone. Hey, I'm going to head out for six months. Somebody keep an eye on the door. I don't know what happened. Don't ask me those questions. I don't know everything. So then they sent the pastor. 
or the pastor sends off, he goes to talk to Paul, and then they get this letter delivered by a couple of other saints, not Epaphis, some other, some other guys come and deliver this letter, and he begins to instruct them. And they're like, who is this guy? I mean, we kind of know of him. And actually, Paul's in prison all the time. People are always trying to tear down Paul. They're trying to, to compromise his message, compromise his character. Right now, he's in prison. So I imagine there are people who are like, why are you going to listen to this guy? He's in prison right now. Are you going to listen some, to some convict? Are you going to listen to some guy who's in prison right now? So Paul basically, I say, all right, once again, let me lay out who I am. And it begins to, to put his credentials on paper again. He quite often has to do that because people are always trying to compromise the integrity of who he is. And you're not an apostle. You're not this. You're not that. So he starts by reminding them what Christ has done in them. And he says in verse 21, And you, once who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. He says, once you were alienated. First he says, I want you to remember how things were before you came to know Christ. And he says that you were alienated or separated. And what does that mean to be alienated or separated? In Ephesians 2.12 it says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So to be alienated means that they were separated from God. They didn't know Him. And they had no part in the promises of God. And the truth, is they, the truth is they had no hope. That's what it meant to be alien. He said, I want you to remember back at the time when you were once alienated. You were separate from God. You had no hope. None of the promises of God. He says, and not only that, you were hostile in mind doing evil deeds. In Romans 8, 7, it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 5.10 it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And in James 4.4 4 it says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He said, you know what? You were separate from God, but not only were you separate from God, you were actually against God. You were an enemy of God. I want you to think back and remember who you were. But he says, it doesn't stop there. He says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says, you know what? This is who you were. But then you met Jesus. And then it all changed right. And then a miracle took place inside of you and something was different. And at that very moment when you received Jesus Christ into your heart, He said you were at that point reconciled to God. He said you were an enemy, but Jesus made it right. He says, and now He did this in order to present you holy. How many in this room is holy? How many people in this room is holy? If you know Jesus, your hand should be raised. Being holy is an identity. It's not, it doesn't matter if you accidentally cussed this morning. You're still holy. If you slipped up, it doesn't make you unholy. Jesus made you holy. If you didn't make yourself holy, you can't make yourself unholy. Amen? Now, because you're holy, 
you should be living a right life, right? Because out of who you are on the inside is who you live. But just because you've slipped up, as long as you get back up, you're good to go. You're still holy. If you know Jesus, you're holy. If you know Jesus, you're blameless. And if you know Jesus, you're above reproach. That being above reproach means that nobody can contest it. The enemy can't contest it. One of my favorite movies is A Knight's Tale. And I, I love using this example because no one's ever seen this movie, but it doesn't matter. It's my favorite movie. You're supposed to have watched it by this time. I told you guys that I'll be using this movie as an example. You should have watched it by now. But anyway, it's got this guy. He's a, he's a commoner, and he becomes a knight. And he's basically been found out. He's been impersonating a knight, and then he's been found out that he's not really a knight. So they got him in shackles. They got him up in, uh, you know, the ones where they have around his neck and around his hands. People are, yeah, the stocks. And they're throwing stuff at him. But then uh, Prince Henry or George, or I don't know, one of the princes shows up. And he finds out about how this guy's been living. And he basically says that by the way you're living, I can tell that you're knightly. And the way your people respect you, I can tell that you're knightly. So he turns around to the crowd and he says, he says, my personal... Historians have found record of his knight knighthood. And as it's my word, it bears, because it's my word, it bears no contestation. Because he said it, it was. Basically, his word was above reproach. There was nothing anybody could do. And that's what happens when you accept Jesus into your heart. You are blameless and above reproach. And because it's God's word, it bears no contestation. Amen? Amen. I'm telling you, you guys need to see that movie. It's a good movie. And then he goes on to say in Colossians 1.23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Do you know faith in Jesus is a continued thing? It's not a one and done. It's, you don't get to come up to the altar one day, say a prayer, and hit that checkbox, and you're good to go. Faith in Jesus. Continue. Paul says that you have to continue in the faith. And you know what? This isn't the only place. This isn't a one scripture that we see this. We see this repeated plenty of times. In Romans 11, 20-22, it says, That is true, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but stand fast. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. And that's not the only You can look in 1 Thessalonians 3.5. You can look in Hebrews 10.38-39. You can look in Hebrews 3.6. You can look in Hebrews 3.14. We see this idea that we must continue in the faith. Some people have an idea that once you get saved, you're always saved. There's nothing that can take that away. And that's true. There's nothing in this world that can take that away from you. Unless you give it back freely as it was freely given to you. You have to continue in the faith. If you stop believing, you've got a problem. If you stop trusting God, you've got a problem. We have to continue in the faith. And he says that you are these things. He reconciled you. You're blameless, holy, above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. In 
And then he says, <clears throat> he says, what you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, he says, hey, you know this gospel that you heard? You know how you used to be alienated, but now you're not? You know the gospel that you heard that changed you on the inside, that they gave you a brand new life inside of you? You know the one in 1 Corinthians where it says, uh, you, every, everyone who believes in Christ is a new creation? He says, you know that one, that gospel? Yeah, I'm a minister of that gospel. That's who I am. He said, if you're concerned about whether you can listen to what I'm writing, let me tell you about who I am. I'm the minister of that gospel. Matter of fact, in Romans 2.16, Paul even refers to it as his gospel. He said, this is my gospel. Paul was committed to it. He claimed ownership of it. He said, this is, this is what I'm committed to, is preaching this gospel, this gospel that's changed your life. And he goes on to say, in Colossians 1, 24-26, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. This is an interesting scripture to me. Because this says some stuff up here that, that at, at first glance seems to conflict with a few things that we've been taught about the gospel. Right? Because what have we been, we've been taught about the gospel, right? That, that Jesus is the only way. That Jesus' sacrifice is enough. That nothing is lacking in Jesus. Right? We've all been taught that. Hebrews 10.10, 10, it says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then in Hebrews 10.19 it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... Oh, I wrote the wrong one down. Whoops. There's a scripture that says there's no longer... If we continue It's in Hebrews, if we continue sinning, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. You guys ever heard that scripture? 10.25, I copied the wrong one. It says there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. And what he's saying is, is that Jesus was the only sacrifice that's ever needed. There is nothing going forward. There is no more sacrifice for sin. It was Jesus. Jesus plus nothing is everything. But Jesus plus anything is nothing. You guys heard that expression? Great expression. And we all know that. We've all heard that. So in that case, how can Paul say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking and Christ's afflictions. That seems a little weird, right? Because I'm filling up what is lacking. Wait a minute, Pastor. When we just read a bunch of scriptures, there's nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. His sacrifice is once and for all. You know, there was something that Jesus didn't do. He didn't preach the gospel. That's what Paul's referring to. As he goes on down here, he says, he says that God has given it to me for you to make the word of God fully known. What was lacking in Jesus, Jesus went and died for us. His sacrifice is perfect, but people still have to believe. Jesus still gave the, the great commission. That's our responsibility. That was Paul's responsibility. That was what Paul's referring to about what's lacking in Christ's suffering. That had nothing to do with his sacrifice for us. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God and said, it is finished. You don't sit down and say it is finished unless it's finished. Amen? But we still have to share the gospel. It has to get out. And that's what Paul was. Paul says, I'm a minister of that gospel. And Paul did it for the church. He did it for the saints. Paul loved the church. Paul loved the saints. And he was willing 
to give it all for them. He was willing to spend time in prison to make sure that people heard. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to hurt. He was willing to have his character thrashed and trashed. And we know he was in prison multiple times for it. He was beaten multiple times for it. He was shipwrecked multiple times for it. And Paul was commissioned by God to make the gospel known to the world. And he says that what I'm letting you know, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That mystery was his son. Matter of fact, the reason why I tell people when they first become believers to read the New Testament, John through Jude, ten times before they ever read the Old Testament is because the Old Testament doesn't make any sense unless you read it in light of Jesus. And you begin to see that everything God ever did pointed to Jesus. And it used to be a mystery, but now it's been revealed in His Son. And now Paul has revealed that to us. And in Colossians 1.27, he says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of, the mystery, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It says, To them God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Hey, aren't you guys happy about this whole among the Gentiles thing? That's exciting to me. Tony might have been all right, but I'm... <laughs> I said, you might have been all right, but I'm a Gentile. I needed it to be known among the Gentiles. <laughs> Amen. He says, in the riches of Christ, Christ's glory is Christ in us. You know, the Scripture says that we have a treasure hidden in earthen vessels. That means inside your meat bucket, you got a treasure. you got Jesus inside you. Boy, that just that turned you into filet mignon. And basically Paul's saying, hey, you guys are included. You're, part, you're among those Gentiles. I remember when we went to Africa, we were, we were preaching to the different pastors. We had a pastor's conference. And uh, Pastor Mike was sharing the gospel with these pastors. And it was an amazing time. We ended up having like 27 pastors get saved. They didn't even know that they were supposed to get saved. And... Uh, but there was this one lady I remember particularly. Her husband was the pastor of this, this church in this village, and he passed away. So she took over the responsibility. And at one point, she broke down on her knees, and she began to cry out, there's room for me. There's room for me. I want you to know there's room for you. Paul's saying to the Colossians, there's room for you. You know, he then goes on to say, in Colossians 1.28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that Him is Jesus. He says, I want to present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's saying this, you want to know who I am? I'm the one preaching Jesus. If you're concerned why I should be able to write you this letter, I'm the one that warns everybody of the perils of going without Jesus. And he says, I'm teaching people of his goodness. And then he says, I'm the one who wants to present you mature in Christ. I'll tell you what, that's somebody I could get behind. 
somebody that cares about me so much that he's willing to endure all sorts of things that I might know Jesus, and not only just know Jesus, but become mature in Jesus, to grow in him. I think that's someone, if, if I knew that about them and they wrote me a letter, I might, I might listen. Why? Because you know he cares about you. You know, you know that they're invested in you. You know, it's a lot easier to take advice and instruction from somebody when you know that they love you and they're cared about your well, they care about your well-being. The truth is, when I read Paul and how he writes to his churches, and in this case, not even his church, I want to be a man like Paul. I want to be a pastor like Paul. I want to see people the way that he saw them, which is the way that Jesus saw them. And I want to say of that same attitude of heart that Paul had. And we'll end here today in Colossians 1.29. It says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, Paul was willing to endure all these things, to suffer, to struggle, to toil, because of the goodness of God that was available to others. He, he considered the gospel so valuable that he would endure anything that others might have a chance to receive it. Matter of fact, Paul one time said, I would give up my own salvation that all my Jewish brothers would receive it. I don't know if I can make that kind of commitment, if I'm being honest with you. Paul cared about the church, he cared about non believers. And he was willing to endure and suffer anything. And he says, you know what? I don't do it alone, though. He says, I toil and I struggle, but it's with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. He let God work through him. And because of that, he can endure anything. He figured, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to die and go be with Jesus. Win-win. Right? Matter of fact, at one point Paul said, he said, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm torn because on one hand... To, to, to die would be gain to be with Jesus. But on the other hand, i got work to do. And he stayed to do the work which God had called him to do, but he was okay with going and being with Jesus. So today, as we close this message, I want to challenge us all to be a people who are willing to toil and struggle for the kingdom of heaven. You know, that's one of the things about being in a little church probably some of you that are tired of, man, he's asking me to do something else. Man, we, there's, there's only a little bit of us. We've got stuff to do. That means I want to put you to work. But I want to challenge us to be a people who are willing to toil and to struggle, who are willing to give up their free time, to give up their finances, to give up their resources in order to affect the kingdom of God, to make a difference. And know that no matter how tired you are, how rough it is, that it's God working in you that will allow you to accomplish His goals on this earth. Amen? And we do it in His strength and not our own. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.